It sure is good to see you here this morning, each and every one of you, and I see new faces, people who have been away for a while and who have come back to us and uh, who have maybe been facing uh, uh, setbacks in life with uh, physical illness or whatever, and others who are just being extremely careful, and uh, you're here today, so thank you for being part. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to actually capitalize on what Gary just read to us out of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus tells his disciples, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we're going to pick up, this is the second week of our introduction into the book of Acts. Let me just say by way of reminder that uh, in the back we have the little journals, the journals that you can use uh, that are on the book of Acts. It actually has the scripture, and, uh, and so if you'd like one, they're back there. I think we're asking for a $5 donation. If you don't have the 5 bucks, that's fine. Take one. We're not going to worry about that. Uh, I think some folks have even put in more than $5 so that others would have them who couldn't afford that. But we do want you to have that opportunity as a Bible student to have a note section to follow with. I... Uh, I, I just by, I have to say this before we go further, uh, and, I, and we ought to do this for all of our new babies that are born in our church. I know Paul and Joanna just had a baby, and there's others who've had babies in our church. Uh, my daughter Morgan just had a baby last night, so praise God for that, huh? And uh, we rejoice. And if, if you have recently had a baby, send your picture of your baby to us because I want them to be up on the screen. I think we should, as a congregation, celebrate new life in our church. See, there's more than one way to grow the church. <laughs> Amen. And uh, I, this baby's name, the little guy, he's eight pounds. His name is Ford Walter Brown. And uh, Walter is my father's first name. So I called my mom and dad yesterday and said, hey, my dad's 88. So what he does, he gets up in the morning, he looks at the list of all the great great grands and the grands, and he tries to memorize all their names every day. And uh, I said, dad, you're not going to forget this one. He's named after you. And so that's, that's a good thing. But I'm serious. If you have a child, if you've had a child recently, we, we need to celebrate that. That's so important. And, uh, and it, there's nothing like the miracle of birth. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go ahead, if we can, and get started. If you weren't here last week, let me just share with you as a reminder that the writer of the book of Acts is none other than the physician and historian Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, obviously. And what is unique about the book of Acts is that we see a transition from the birth and the life of the risen Savior in the Gospels to the distribution of this redemption story found in Christ. We see this transition to that uh, in the book of Acts, Acts, where God is now calling the apostles to teach the body of Christ, the church, the redemption story of God, the gospel, and to explain the doctrines of the faith so that the church, the people of God, you, might be able to go into the world and share the gospel with the world. And so some people call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, others call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but in reality, from Genesis to Revelation, God himself is the centerpiece. God is the great character that we are studying. And in this case, we are looking at the redemption story that started in Genesis that will finally close out in Revelation. And the book of Acts is where it moves from the life of Christ and the fulfillment of the redemption story to the dissemination of that redemption story through the Holy Spirit in us. And so this is a wonderful book. It comes at a perfect time after just finishing the Gospel of Matthew. And so when you tie it all together, if, I, if you want to write this down, you can write it down. But uh, the redemption story in the Old Testament is God acting in blessing and in judgment. He acted in blessing and in judgment. In the New Testament, it's about God bringing redemption through His Son. So in the Old Testament, God sometimes acted in blessing and also in judgment. In the New Testament, he brings redemption through his son. And the book of Acts is about God acting through the apostles 
into the lives of the church so that they might share that message with the world for his eternal glory. We ended last week by looking at the means by which God will use his church to bring the gospel to the world. There are several means that God uses. We find all those means in the early church, in the book of Acts. And by the way, those means do not change. Man changes, man tries to change the look of the church, the identity of the church, the marketing of the church, the plan of the church, the strategy of the church. God's never changed any of that. And we're going to take a look at that again today and see right in the scripture how God is able to reach every person on the face of the globe, regardless of culture, background, language. He can reach them with the exact same gospel. The pressure is off, church. Just because you meet someone who's nothing like you does not disqualify you for sharing the gospel. It's not you that is selling it. This is not a sales pitch. This is people who are faithful to disseminate, to spread, to broadcast the seed of the gospel into the hearts of all kinds of people. And it's the gospel itself that does the work of saving. God's word does the saving. We just need to be faithful to broadcast it. And we're going to see that. So we ended last week looking at the means. And let's first establish that the church is God's idea. That is why I had Gary read the passage that he read. It's God's idea, this whole concept of church. Jesus spoke of the church in Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock I will build what church? My church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And surely those words have rung true ever since. God's church is indestructible. You, church... You are the church, the called out ones. You are indestructible in God's eyes. You are indestructible in the work that God's given you to do. You say, yeah, but Christians die all the time. You better believe it. They really do. This week we heard John Lennox speak uh, at the scene conference. John Lennox spoke. He's actually simulcast his message live from uh, England. Was he in England or Ireland? Ireland? He was in Ireland. And in that message, he actually said that more Christians have been martyred in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined, going all the way back to the first century when the great persecution broke out, all the way forward, all those martyrs, all those that were persecuted is not more than we saw in the last century. And yet now in the 21st century, the church is still thriving strong in the Lord. No matter how much persecution comes, God's church will not be prevailed against. That's his church. Now, there are those who when persecution comes will wander away from the church. They will go into hiding. They were never part of his church. But those who are truly saved will not wander and leave. They will remain faithful to the very end. And it will prove what Jesus said, that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. So what are these means by which God grows his church? Let me give you some of the unique traits of the church that God describes in the book of Acts for you and I. Because we're the carryover. What started in the book of Acts now continues in our lives. So it's good that we, the church, understand those unique traits that we have that God put in place. First, and we looked at this one last week, so I just want to take a moment and repeat it. The first means is the message of the church is life-giving. God's church is life-giving with their message. That's because the message of the church comes from the preaching of God's Word, the church does not have a message apart from the Word of God. That is our only message. That is the only hope for the world. The world is not hanging on our charisma, on our woo, on our ability to communicate with great skill. No, the church is going to be saved through the gospel being preached, through the foolishness of preaching, the Bible says. In Acts 6-7, listen to this. Let me just give you some scripture. Look, these are not my opinions here. 
These are means that God put in place. Let me show you. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. As the people communicated the word of God, the word of God increased, souls were being saved. They were being multiplied. I think that's an awesome passage. And, and then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. The church was being edified. How is the church edified? How are you edified? How am I edified? By the word of God. When the word is preached with power, it edifies your spirit, your soul. It strengthens you. And, and, and listen to this. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied, it says in Acts 9. In Acts chapter 12, verse 24, it says, the word of God increased and multiplied. This is not repetitive. This is not the same passage. This is later. It increases and multiplies again. And then in Acts chapter 16, verse 5, we've now transitioned into a completely pagan world, and it says this, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, in the pagan world, and they increased in numbers daily. God's church cannot keep from growing when the, when the people are faithful to his word, when, when we remain faithful to God. Obviously, the preaching of the word was the fuel that set the church on fire as it moved across the known world. Yes, the Holy Spirit was the one who was illuminating the word, bringing people alive, energizing them, giving them boldness to share. But it was the word that was doing the saving. In John 6, 63, Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see, that's, that's what you offer someone who's unsaved. Your words won't change them. No man can save another man. But when you are able to speak the word of God to them, that is where the saving comes. Because the Holy Spirit is doing the saving. He's doing the convicting, the drawing of that soul to God. Unless the Spirit draws a man, he cannot come to God, the Scripture says. So you're just being faithful to broadcast the seed, and you get to have a front row seat and watch the Holy Spirit work. You say, well, What's the work that's going to happen that I'm going to see? One of two things. Either the person will come under conviction of, of the words that you're sharing, and they will become fearful and scared and angry that you shared it and run, or they will humble up before God under the mighty hand of the Lord and in great fear and trembling repent of their sin and be saved. And you'll have a front row seat to it. But one thing we'll know, it was not you that saved them. It was the work of the word that did the saving. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't matter what culture, what background, what nationality, what language, what, whatever, it doesn't matter. Be faithful to share the gospel because the preaching of the gospel is salvation to those who believe. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, For the, the word of the cross or the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, that's, the, that's what happens when a church is faithful to God with the word of God. It brings people, lost people, to a point of decision. They either receive it gladly because their heart is ready and the Holy Spirit opens them to understand it, or they reject it angrily and they run the other way. And you putting yourself ahead of the gospel does not help anyone get saved. You say, how do I put myself ahead of the gospel? When you won't share it for fear that they might reject the message. You just made it all about you. And it's not about us. It's about him. Amen? We must be faithful to share the good news of Jesus 
regardless the outcome. Be faithful. Share it. Regardless the period of history, regardless the cultural distinctions, the message of the gospel is life-giving. It transcends all languages, all nations, all cultures, all societal norms, all contexts. In the first century, they didn't have a mass media attempting to create one global world economy and one global social system. Instead, there existed very deep-seated cultural perspectives. Every village had their own unique context. Every region, every nation had very different perspectives and languages. And yet, none of those distinct cultures had any effect on the life-giving message of the gospel. You see, Paul made no attempt to massage the gospel with different types of people. He didn't do anything to try and get them to accept it. He just shared it for what it is. The message of Christ ignores all nuances of social orders and the peculiarities of various customs and styles because all those things are pointless when it comes to the gospel. There is the same ache in every single heart. The Holy Spirit convicts every human being of their sinfulness. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter how you were raised. Doesn't matter what color you are. All of us are sinners. None is righteous. No, not one. The gospel message works if we're faithful to share it. Paul made no attempt to massage. Our message can go to any person, any place, or on any continent, and it ignores the trends and the fads and the pop culture and brings heaven's truth down to earth in a fully unfamiliar, life-giving way. It should look weird to them. It's not of this world. Don't be so quick to try to somehow explain everything away so that people will accept it. Forget that. Just share it and watch God move. It was the life-giving message through the preaching of the gospel that fueled a rapidly growing church in the book of Acts. It had such an impact in the book of Acts that Acts 17 says this, as the Jews came into Thessalonica, or the Jews in Thessalonica spoke this about the Christians in the region. These men have turned the world upside down with their message that there is another king named Jesus Christ. The church in that day had turned the world upside down with the message. Oh, that Vero Bible Fellowship would turn Vero Beach and Indian River County upside down with the message of the gospel. What would happen in our county if this one church was faithful to God and took it serious to share the gospel in love and be willing to face the rejection, but know also that while some might reject, others will be saved. The message of the church is life-giving. Let me give you another means that God put in place. The identity, identity of the church is a regenerate people. The identity of the church is a regenerate people. And I want to explain this. This is very interesting and very important that we understand. The church is not an event for non-Christians, nor is it an assembly of non-believers. That is not the church. Now let me say this. If we hold an evangelistic event, that's what it is, an evangelistic. But it's not the church. If we're drawing lost people and they're sitting amongst us, that is a focus on lost people for the sharing of the gospel. But the church is not that. I want you to get this. Please understand. The church is the called out people of God who gather to worship God and be edified by the word of God. That's church. Church is saved people, period. That when the church meets for the edification of one another and for the worship of God, unchurched people can come and they will see the church doing what church does, worshiping God. And that will either turn them on 
or it'll turn them off. But we're not going to change this service to try to become so easy for lost people to like us. I don't have a, secu- a, a, you know, a security issue here. I'm not insecure about who I am in Christ. I need to be who I am in Christ. You need to be, be who you are in Christ. We, the church, need to carry out the identity of the church. And then when lost people see it, they'll know the difference between the world and the church. There's a serious defect in any church that fails to understand that the church is nothing more, nothing less than the assembly of God's redeemed people. So what did the early church focus on when they met together? What was the purpose of their meeting? Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We haven't even started the verse-by-verse study yet. But I, I do want to touch base on some passages that I think are key passages before we get there next week. Acts 2, 42. I'll give you a second, find it. Acts 2, 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, plural. These are the things that regenerate people do. These are not things that lost people do. These are the things that the early church did. Apostles' teaching, write it down. That's the foundation for their spiritual growth and maturity. It was found in the truth of Scripture, and the apostles received that truth, and they disseminated that truth to the church, to you, to me. The fact that we have the New Testament, the Old Testament, that is the faithful teaching of the prophets and the apostles who have delivered to us the Word of God. Secondly, fellowship. Christian fellowship occurs when believers, those who are called out, gather together because they are joined together in Jesus Christ. We all have that in common. We can look different. We can have different shades of skin color. We can have different languages. We can come from various parts of the world. Really, honestly, This church should reflect every culture that's in Vero Beach, Florida. Where's the amen? I don't want to be part of a church that's all just like me. That's man's church. Man's the one that does the target marketing to go after certain types of people. We want poor people. We want wealthy people. We want people who are down and out. We want people who are famous. We want whoever, whatever. But when they come to Jesus, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, and he holds us together. That is a great testimony to the world. What what, what exactly does that fellowship do? I'll tell you what it does. It stimulates us to righteousness and obedience in Christ. When I see you on a journey to to live righteously in Christ, to be obedient to Christ, that spurs me on in that same journey. Amen? Then the third thing is the breaking of bread. That is a direct reference to communion, the Lord's Supper, which is mandatory for all Christians to observe. Uh, Listen, did you hear what I said? It's mandatory that we have communion together. The Bible says it's that important. And then lastly, prayers. This was the atmosphere that the Christian community in the book of Acts lived in. It was their atmosphere. They were saturated in prayer. They saw private and corporate prayer as essential in the church as air is to the physical body. Prayer was key Nothing happens without prayer. For a church to be prayerless, that is a declaration to God that we don't really need him. Only people who are relying upon God will spend time in prayer. And when the church makes these four things the focus, 
Look what happens. Look at this now. Beginning at verse 43. Look, this was verse 42. They were given to apostles, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Look at the latter part of verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Look at verse 46. And day by day, not Sunday by Sunday, church, every single day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They didn't have to wait to show up on Sunday for somebody to get saved. They were seeing salvation every day. Why? Because they were daily going together to the temple, to the synagogue, where the Jews were that didn't know that Jesus is Messiah. And they were taking from the Old Testament scripture that the Jew was familiar with and teaching that Jesus is the fulfillment. The law was not the fulfillment. The law points us to Jesus. No man can keep the law. So Jesus kept the law perfectly and became the sacrificial lamb once for all. They taught that. And day by day, people were getting saved. This is the DNA of God's church. This is the church. Do I seem fired up about this today? I sure hope that's conveying well. It's not an act. I feel it deeply in my spirit. Go back at verse 40, chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It says they were of one heart and soul because they were of one accord by the Holy Spirit. The Lord's church is an assembly. Listen now, let me say it again. I want us to get this. It's an assembly. The church is an assembly of regenerate people. To explain that for some of you who maybe are newer to the faith or maybe it's never been explained to you. I don't want to just assume that you know what that means. To be regenerate is to be saved. When a person is born in this world, as they come and they grow, their spirit is unregenerate. It's there. It's just in a state of death. It's in a state of non-existence. And so when the Holy Spirit woos and draws someone to God and then the gospel is explained to them and the light comes on immediately like that, in the twinkling of an eye, the Spirit takes that unregenerate spirit and regenerates it. And that person is now saved. By the way, none of that process is man's. It's all a work of God in the heart. Isn't that wonderful? The church is totally devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why they gathered together faithfully for the apostles' teaching of doctrine, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread, and for prayers. And when we focus on these things that God ordained in his church, listen, the book of Acts tells us the church will grow. You don't need church growth concepts. You don't need special events to grow the church. Friends Day. We're all going to invite our friends to church next Sunday. Let me tell you what that is. That's lazy Christian stuff. Rather than me share with my friends every day, I'm going to wait and just let the church explain everything to them next Sunday. And by the way, they won't get it because they're not in the church yet. They can attend, but they're not saved. Only the Holy Spirit can awaken them to that. But see, those churches aren't thinking that way. They're thinking if we can get them to come once, maybe they'll come back. A person might start attending every week and they're not saved. And they think they are because they go to church. And people in the church begin to think, man, our church is really growing. No, your church isn't growing. You're just growing in the number of pagans that you have. That's not church. It's not called tear theology. It's, it's wheat theology. We're after changing souls. Amen? Well, this leads to a third means by which God grew his church. First, the message of the church is life-giving. Secondly, 
The identity of the church is a regenerate people. Thirdly, the character of the church was a faithful perseverance to God's work. Boy, if there's any point that fits our day, it's this point. The character found in the early church, it was a faithful perseverance of the saints to God's work. The early church focused on joining God in his great work rather than trying to create their own work. The church is not the work of man and his big ideas. It's the work of God carried out by the Holy Spirit. We just get to join him in it. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 3. This is a story, a real story, and I want you to read it with me. I want you to see it here. You're going to see the faithful perseverance of God's people to his work. In Acts 3, verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, this man asked to receive alms. Please give me something if you could. And Peter directed his gaze at this man, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his, his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. These are going to be good humanitarians they're going to do something, some humanitarian thing for me today. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. I have nothing in my human experience or possession that can help you. But what I do have, I gladly, freely give to you today. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. What just happened was two men said, we're going to join God in his work. His work is much better than our work. Our work would be to pull out a few coins and throw them to this man. Anybody can do that. But what this man needs is Jesus. He needs the supernatural intervention of God Almighty in his life. And what exactly did Peter and John do? Rather than doing a humanitarian effort, they joined Christ in his work of healing this man. This was not a humanitarian effort. This was a spiritual work of God. The disciples believed that Jesus could do better at meeting this man's needs than they could. So they joined him in his work. And I want you to see what it produced. God is the one who healed this man. It was not Peter and John. They said, look at, look at us, come on. We can't do anything for you. But what we have, we do have Jesus living in us. And we want to give that to you. And Jesus healed this man. In Acts chapter 3, verse 9, here's what it produced. Look, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who sat at the temple gate, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now we'll go down further. Let me tell you what else happened because of this event. Chapter 4, verse 21 says that the people were praising God for what he had done for this lame man. God was getting all the glory for this event. And when the church is focused on the Lord's work, God draws all the people to himself and his church grows. I want to say this to you. Peter and John were apostles. 
They were given special ability because of apostleship. It doesn't mean that as human beings, as God's people, that we too don't have the Holy Spirit working in us and he expects us to join him in his work and let God do the work through us. That's exactly what it is. But, we're, but never confuse the work of the apostles with the work that God has given the church to do. The apostles were given a specific task for a specific amount of time, and then they were gone. And the church then, having been well-equipped by the apostles and the people who were saved because they saw God in the apostles, they believed, and now God, through the Holy Spirit, gives them a work to do, just like he's given us a work to do. And I want you to look down at Acts chapter 5 now. Verse 13, more fallout from the healing of this man. It's speaking of the unbelievers who witnessed God's work in the church, and it says the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Why? Because the early church focused on joining God in His work, not trying to create their own work. Some of you are hearing this message today and you're going to go out of here and you're going to say, okay, now how can I share the gospel? I'm not, I'm not really good at communicating with people, so I've got to find a way to do it. And you would be wrong in taking that tact. God has given you the gospel. He's only asking you to share it. That Jesus is God who came in the flesh incarnate and who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for all of us because we were imperfect. We are all sinners. And we can believe in him as the son of God. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's not about, everything I just told you is the gospel. It's not Greg. You can do that. And when you do it that way, when you just are faithful to the gospel, God does what we're seeing here in the book of Acts in chapter 3, 4, and 5. And people get saved because of you. Because you're joining God in His work. They continued to preach a life-giving message. This was a message, by the way. The life-giving message, the message of the gospel, it has both good and bad news for the sinner. You have to be faithful to the whole message of God. you got to tell people that back in the beginning in Genesis, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and had everything they needed and a perfect atmosphere to live for God. But they chose to be like God. They sinned. And we have inherited the sin of Adam and Eve. That mark of sin is on every human being, and there's no getting away from it. And the wages of that sin is death. They need to hear that. If you do not receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the atonement for your sin, the penal substitution for your sin, listen, you will die one day, and you will go to hell. Only a loving friend would be that honest with a lost person. If you're not willing to tell someone where their sin is going to land them apart from the work of Christ, believing in that work, you are not a good person. You're withholding information that will land them in hell, potentially because you didn't share it, because you were afraid they might reject it, because you didn't want it to reflect poorly back on you. You made it about you again. Sharing the gospel is not about us. It's about Christians who are faithful to share the whole message, the good and the bad. See, the bad is that we're all sinners and we're destined for hell. The good news is God sent his son to pay the price for our sins so that we don't have to go to hell. We can spend eternity in heaven with God. Isn't that awesome? 
They need to hear the whole message. These people were faithful to the message. And where did that faithfulness land them? Well, turn to chapter 8. We're not going to read it, but I'm just going to tell you about it. By chapter 8, by the time we get to chapter 8, the apostles are in prison. Stephen has been stoned to death. Why? For telling the good and the bad news of the gospel. And it's here that we learn of a man named Saul who is in hearty agreement with these who have persecuted other Christians. I will read verse 1 through 3 for you. It says in Acts 1, 8, 1 through 3, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Look, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the apostle Paul in his young days, totally lost, unregenerate, pagan in his understanding of Christ, a devout Jew, but totally lost. And he's against the church. And God saves him miraculously. And he becomes the greatest and the first missionary on the face of the earth. Isn't that awesome? Let me tell you this. God can use anybody he chooses to use. Young men that are sitting here today from Teen Challenge, you can do whatever God calls you to do. I don't care what past you have. I don't care what any of you, what past you have, what sins you've committed, what terrible things you, uh, others have said about you, what your parents have said about you. I'm telling you, when God calls someone, he means it. And if you'll be faithful to that calling, he will use you to do glorious, wonderful, mighty things to bring glory to his name. He'll use anybody. I love what uh, Robert Murray McChain a Scottish man of God, a preacher, a young man. He died at the age of 29 years old. He never got to be a middle-aged man. You know what he said? He said, for every time that you look inside at yourself, thinking somehow, you know, you look in and you go, oh, man, sin. Oh, man, I'll never, what do I got to do to get it? He says, for every time you look inside yourself, you look 10 times at Jesus on the cross. Jesus paid the price. You can't fix yourself inside. Christ is outside of you. He died for you. And if you focus on him, you'll always remember that every sin you've ever committed or will commit is covered by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now all of a sudden, lift your head, look to God, receive the calling, and get out there, sick them to a dog. Go get them. Don't let Satan beat you up. You are found faithful in God's eyes through the work of Jesus. Amen. Christians, listen. If the church is to grow, there has to be a faithful perseverance of the saints in the face of hostility. And the hostility is towards the message that we preach. Don't take it personal. Don't be one of those kind of Christians that takes everything personal. It's not about you. It's about God. They're upset with God. You just happen to be standing there. Go back to chapter 4, and I remind you of a very important principle. Here they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to the apostles, being greatly disturbed because they were uh, teaching the people and proclaiming in the, in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And again, the world admired their life, but they hated their message. They saw this, this integrity in the lives of these men, these Christians, but they hated the message that they preached. <laughs> I love that. Verse 4, in chapter 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men alone came to be about 5,000. See, the church grew under the force and power of the truth, even though that truth brought bad news. The modern church strategy will tell you that, you know, saying, that saying things that people don't want to hear will not lead to growth in the church. But in the early church, that's exactly what happened. 
Saying things people didn't want to hear is what grew the church. The church will not be built by men with clever means and strategies. The church will be built by God through the hard truth encompassing the warning of final judgment. So just know that while they may respect our integrity, they're going to hate our message. It's okay. You'll get over it. Move on. Amen. It's okay. Suffering is good. Amen. Like the girl at the Wendy's back when I was like 30 years old and I was wanting a glass of water, ice water, at a Wendy's up in Daytona Beach. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'll have, a, I'll have a large ice water. And she said, oh, 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 um, we, don't, we, we can't serve uh, a large cup with ice water. It has to be a small cup. I said, yeah, you can. You can do it. I believe in you. You can do it. Pulled up, there was a large glass of ice water. <laughs> Somebody says, oh, you know, you don't know the suffering that I'm going through for Jesus. Oh, the persecution, woe is me. Oh, it's wonderful to hear. Praise God you're being persecuted. You are in the ranks with Jesus and the apostles. What a blessing of God. Jesus said, blessed are you. If men revile you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Wow, what a blessing. How, how would that be if every Sunday, because we're out there faithfully sharing God with people and we're faithfully getting batter, battered by people, their verbal abuse, and we come together and we're like, woo! High-fiving each other for being faithful to God. Letting God get the glory for salvations. Amen. Let me give you the last one. I'm not going to spend any time on it. Number four, another, another wonderful means by which God grows his church. The distinguishing, distinguishing quality of God's church is an apparent purity. This is what marks the church against the world. Listen, church. It's not our music. It's not good preaching. It's our lives of purity. There is the mark of a true church. With so many being attracted to the supernatural miracles and wonders happening in the early church, God had to protect the purity of the church. Some people will come for the sensual reasons. God's like, that's not what church is about. It's not about the miracles. Church is about the purity. And so if you look with me, just quickly, look at chapter 5. Here's the background. All these people were getting saved from the day of Pentecost forward. Many of them, most of them, were coming from other parts of the known world. They had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast and now for Pentecost. This was the two great Jewish feasts that Jews traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem to celebrate. And on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon the apostles and the 120, and all of a sudden, church was started, and people were saved. That day, 3,000 got saved. They couldn't go home. You know why? Because there was no church back home. This is the infancy of the church. It's only in Jerusalem. And so these folks are hanging out and staying and they're moving into the homes of those other Jews who believe that live in Jerusalem. And so in order to make it, the church, the people started giving, selling property that they own, selling possessions, and taking the money and laying it at the feet of the apostles and saying, please distribute this to everyone, those who are in need, because many were in a dire situation. And so this story in chapter 5 is about a couple in the church who made a public proclamation that they were going to sell a piece of property and give the proceeds to the church, just like so many others had done. Only this time, when they, when they sold the property, they only gave a portion to the Lord's work. Now, if they had said in that public proclamation, we're going to sell property and give, give some of it to the church, that would have been fine. That's not what they said. We're going to give it all. 
And so I want you to pick this up. The man's name is Ananias. His wife's name is Sapphira. They sold this property. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. They come to church on Sunday with some of the proceeds, the part that they were going to give to God and lay down at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now please understand, Peter as an apostle is not saying that everybody had to go out and sell something and give it all to the church. He wasn't commanding anybody to do anything. The Holy Spirit led them to give money, and the Holy Spirit led them to give all of it. They felt led to do that. But now they're coming with a portion of it. Peter calls them out right in the church service. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men or to man, but to God. Listen now, this is in the church service. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it, I guess. In the church service, he walks forward, he lays down part of the money. The apostle calls him out on it, and immediately he falls over dead. God killed him right there on the spot in front of the whole church. Understand, this isn't for sexual sin. This is not for the sin of murder. This is not because uh, he, 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 he went out and did some terribly, extremely bad thing. He lied. And it's not, he didn't even withhold the whole amount. He just withheld some of it. But God is purifying his church right here, early in the book of Acts. He's purifying his church. Any sin, even what might appear to be insignificant, is worthy of execution. The wages of sin is what? Death. Verse 6, the young men rose up. So the boys from Teen Challenge got up. They came forward. And they carried that man out and buried him. Right in the church service. And after an interval of about three hours... That's a long church service. His wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet. And breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. What a Sunday service. <laughs> Yikes! Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I'll bet the next Sunday's offering was huge! <laughs> the fear of the Lord hit that place. In that one act, God sobered his people and called them back to purity. We are not here to have a show. We're not here to appeal to sensuality, the five senses. We are here to worship and honor the one true living God. And if you play with that, hmm, this is why ministers, elders, need to have a sanctifying purity in their life to model before the people. This is why the people need to have a sanctifying purity in their life. The trend today is to remove the fear of the Lord, turn the preacher into some kind of a comedian who says funny, clever things, even off-color things at times, things that are familiar with the pop culture, they're cool, friendly to sinners, that kind of stuff. But that isn't the pattern that the New Testament establishes. The church should be a frightening place because it is awesome to come into the presence of holy God in worship. 
In the infancy of the church, God executed people in the church. The Lord desires a perfecting holiness in the fear of, of the Lord among his people. By the way, that is a command in Scripture. You'll, you'll find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. You might be thinking, that's not going to cause a church to grow. I can tell you that. That'll kill a church. Well, take a look at verse 12. In this story of the two being hauled off dead, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, that's an ideal situation. Let me tell you what happened. So God takes two out to protect his church so that the purity remains. And guess what happened? Those on the outside of the church who heard all about it, they don't want to come anywhere close to that church. I ain't going in there. Unless they came under the fear of the Lord and they saw that God was calling them to a life of purity. And then they came in and they belonged. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women because of the purity. That's church. I'm, I'm asking you, as, as one of the shepherd leaders, all the elders are shepherds, I'm asking you to have a discern, discerning heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you discernment that you not, not fall into the trappings of modern church that takes the emphasis off of God as the sole one that we worship and off of the holiness of God and the purity that he calls for in his church. It breaks my heart to know of friends who will go and worship in a setting where there's no mention of true worship, of holiness. It's just go and have a good time. I love my church because it's fun. I literally know of a church in town during the worship service they've actually had a beach ball, a big beach ball that they hit, people hitting it like at a concert or like at a sporting event, hit the ball during worship. We had so much fun. It's not church. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have fun in the Lord. You'll get more joy with God than you'll get from anything in this world, amen? But there's this, this sobering holiness of God and there's this calling from us who are called out of darkness into his light to worship him in purity. And if something's not right in our hearts and we know it, confess it. It's as simple as that and then you're good to go, man. Don't beat yourself up with it. For every time you look inside, look ten times at Jesus. You're good if you're saved. Well... That's enough. Next week, we'll actually start the book of Acts. <laughs> verse by verse. Let's pray. Father, I don't know. It's just such a beautiful thing. <laughs> Thank you for saving Thank you for letting us be your church. May we not take it for granted. Thank you for your word. It calls us back to you. The pressures are great in this day. Your church is beautiful. And it's even more beautiful when we stand against the pressures against the ways of the world, the ways of even modern church.
we uphold the name of Jesus and we solely worship you on Sunday and no one else. May you be glorified, Father. May we be edified. And may Satan be horrified. Amen. Amen. If anyone wants to come forward and just receive ministry, you know, whatever's going on in your life and you just need to be prayed with, our elders and prayer partners will come up now and just come up and talk to one of them. We never want anyone to come here and think that they are a number. Thank you, brother. Nobody here is a number. We don't see people as nickels and noses. You are a human being created in the image of God. Whether you're saved or not, it doesn't matter. We love you, and we do love you. And so we want to minister to you. So feel free to come. To be saved is not to have somebody pray a prayer over you. To be saved is not to raise a hand. It's not to walk an aisle. To be saved is to recognize by the Holy Spirit that you're a sinner. And by faith, call upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus forgives you. And he saves you. Right then and there. God bless each of you. Have a marvelous day in the Lord. And let's go out this week and let's be witnesses for Jesus.